0: Let's go to the Lord in prayer now as we approach his word. Oh, Father, we ask that you would help us be our guiding light. You are the one who makes dead bones come to life. The one who saves souls from darkness and everlasting judgment. Oh, would you bring salvation, encouragement, and conviction to us today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know about you, but I love the unique buildings in Dubai. I love the architecture. When we moved here, the Burj Khalifa was just beginning to be built. There's that infinity tower, that twisty tower in the marina. There are buildings with big holes in them. In Business Bay, there's one that looks like it's covered in Swiss cheese. Do you know what building I'm talking about. Maybe you've seen it. There's the Museum of the Future, of course, across the street from our Crown Plaza. On the way to Abu Dhabi, you can see a building in the shape of a coin. And if you go further on into the island in Abu Dhabi, you see the world's furthest-leaning tower, the Capitol Gate building. Fascinating architecture, but a more simple building has often intrigued me. A bank. Now what's interesting about a normal bank? Well, when you design a bank, the, the architect always starts with designing the vault. It's where the money and the most valuable possessions are held. It's the secure place of the bank. Only after the bank's Vault's design has been completed, will the rest of the building be designed? And when building the bank, you get the vault on site, you get it situated just right, and then you build the building around the vault. Everything else in the bank is meant to serve and to complement the vault. The vault is everything central to what the bank stands for. It lies at the very heart of it. It gives it purpose and meaning and value. It's central to the bank. Well, friends, for the church, the gospel is like a bank vault to a bank. The gospel lies at the very heart of Christianity. It gives us purpose and meaning. The gospel is what we start with, and the gospel is what we build everything else around. Paul even writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the gospel is a matter of first importance. Church, this is week five in Romans, and we approach what many scholars call the theme verses of the entire letter. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And I have three questions today that I'd like to answer from the text. So three questions that we're going to work through. Number one, what is the gospel That's important for us to answer as we look at verse 16. We're going to have to answer that question. What is the gospel? Number two, what does the gospel announce to those who are not Christians? Maybe you find yourself here today not yet a follower of Christ. So what does the gospel announce to those who are not yet Christians? And finally, number three, what does the gospel demand of those who are Christians? Those of you who follow Christ, what does the gospel demand of us? So those are our three questions. That's where we're headed this morning. Let's start first with that first question, what is the gospel? You can find answers to these questions throughout the two verses. So at each of the three questions, I'm going I'm to share those two verses, verses 16 and 17 again. So starting in 16, Paul writes, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So what is the gospel? Well, we don't get a clear definition here, but notice a few things about the gospel in these Verses, we see that the gospel is something that Paul isn't ashamed of. No shame. The gospel is the very power of God. And in verse 17, we see that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now we'll get to these points later. For now, whatever the gospel is, it's grand, isn't it? Paul takes pride in the gospel. It's God's power and God's own character is revealed in it. Whether we're followers of Christ or not, whether we can explain the gospel in 60 seconds or not, this verse is stunning. Now I mentioned Milton Vincent's short book, A Gospel Primer, last week. Here's the cover. I highly recommend this little short book to you. The gospel's not merely good advice. Vincent, in this book, makes an interesting observation of the instances where the Bible attributes the power of God to something. He writes, Outside of heaven, the power of God in its highest density is found inside the gospel. Nothing else in all of scripture is ever described in this way except for the person of Jesus Christ. Such a description indicates that the gospel is not only powerful, but that it is the ultimate entity in which God's power resides and does its greatest work. What he's saying is the gospel is not just practical tips on how to live your life. It doesn't suffice to say the gospel is love. The gospel certainly describes love, but it's more than that. The gospel is the power of God. God for salvation. The word gospel is the, the Greek word evangelion, evangel. It means good news. The gospel is the good news which leads to salvation. Well, what's this good news? Well, I'm glad you asked. And Redeemer kids, I just want to say I'm happy to see you today. I'm glad we're all together specifically for this sermon. I want to encourage you and I want to encourage any tweens who are here after the service. I'm just going to stand up front. There's lots of space. I want you to come up to me and tell me the gospel. Okay, I want to just give you a challenge now for you to come up to me and share this four-point outline. I'm going to share an easy four-point outline that I think will help you, and I'd love for any of our Redeemer kids or tweens just to come up to me and to share the gospel, okay? Got it? There are many ways we could explain the gospel. There are many different outlines, different ways that we could approach it, different scriptures we could use. I'm going to use a four-part outline that Greg Gilbert uses in his book Called What is the gospel? I've modified the second point slightly, but here's, here's the outline. Four points. God, people, Christ, response. Four points. God, people, Christ, response. And we'll start first with God. We must start with God. God is holy. God is our holy creator. The Bible's first words are radical. The first four words of the whole Bible are some of the most radical words ever written. In the beginning, God. The Bible begins in the most radical way. In them, atheism and polytheism are smashed and discredited. At the the outset of the Bible, the central focus is on God himself. In the beginning, God. He's always been there. He has no birth date, no birthday to celebrate. The beginning and the end. And when God, the Holy Creator, created, he wasn't bored. He lacked nothing. He wasn't lonely. In fact, God is one God and he's eternally existed in three persons God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Their love for one another overflowed onto creation. God is full of love and God is holy and perfect in every way. He created people to be in relationship with him, to love him and enjoy him forever. Just think back to the Garden of Eden, to creation, to those beginning couple chapters of Genesis when the first two humans, Adam and Eve, they were created. God had provided brilliantly for them. He gave them this whole garden with one stipulation not to eat of a certain tree. That garden was wonderful. There was no sin, there was no gossip, no pride, no greed, no lust, no fear. But instead of unbroken fellowship with God, what do we see in the opening chapters of the Bible? We see that instead of unbroken fellowship, there's a devastating turn. God had provided brilliantly for Adam and Eve. Gave them freedom, provided for them. One tree, a smaller limitation would be hard to imagine... But with creation came rebellion. The gospel story continues in the second point, people. So we see God is holy. God has created everything, including man and woman, in his image. But number two, we see that people have sinned. People have sinned. Instead of enjoying fellowship, Adam and Eve, they rejected God. It was no one small action. It was complete rebellion. It was mutiny. It was rejection. They believed the lie that God was keeping something good from them. They made themselves like God. They made up their own rules and ate from that prohibited tree. Making matters worse, when confronted, they blame shifted. Adam tells God, see the woman over there? She made me do it. She made me eat the fruit. The woman doesn't do much better, though. She blames the serpent. And here we have the ultimate blame shift. Ultimately, they blame God. We like to point the finger at Adam and Eve. But Romans tells us that their story is our story, too. Romans five twelve. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people. because listen to this, because all sinned. Romans 3:10 through 12. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because the sin is against an infinitely holy and an infinitely just God, he can't just let it go unpunished. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Friend, you may be going through all kinds of problems right now facing all kinds of trials and tribulations. But we need to remember that our biggest problem is not outside of us. Our biggest problem is not our external circumstances. Our biggest problem is not whatever's on our on our calendar for the rest of the day or the week. Your biggest problem is you. And my biggest problem is me. It's our sin. And the Bible says that we've all sinned. And we see that played out each day of our lives. None of us can make it through a day without sinning. We've all sinned. And the just punishment is death and eternal judgment and torment. Now that's bad news. That's not The good news of the gospel, that's bad news. But to understand the good news, we need to understand this terrible news. God is holy and God's created everything, including man and woman in his image. But people from Adam and Eve on through today have sinned. But, but there is good news. And that's the third point here. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Jesus, God in the flesh, left heaven, came to earth and lived the perfect life. He took our punishment. Now, for those of you that have uh, been with us the last couple years, you might know this answer, or if you've spent time in the New Testament reading, what other place in the Bible does the book begin with in the beginning? And now I've mentioned Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God. Does anybody know what other book starts that way? Yeah, I think I hear a lot of roars of the Gospel of John. Starts that same way. We preach 44 sermons through that great gospel. And we saw there that in the beginning, the Word, meaning Jesus, in the beginning, the Word became flesh. The one who made people became a person. Let me just say that again. That is incredible. The one who made people became a person. He lived the perfect life that we failed to live. He went to the cross where the opposite of Genesis 1 happens. In Genesis 1, Jesus spoke and the creation came into existence. Now on the cross, Jesus speaks again. But this time there's no answer. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was a most surprising silence. Christ died. Jesus, the uncreated one, fully God and fully man, took our punishment at the cross. We just sang of this a few minutes ago. At the cross, at the cross, Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath. He drank the full cup of God's wrath that was due us and cried out, It is finished. He took it all. Church, this is the gospel that the just and loving creator of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful people. He provided a substitute for us. Jesus bore our sin and on the third day he rose from the dead, proving that the sacrifice was true and conquering death, conquering judgment and conquering the sins of his people from eternity past on into the future. When we couldn't save ourselves, God did it for us. But we must respond to this grace. And that's the fourth point here, our response. God is holy. People have sinned. Jesus saves. But friends, we must respond. There's nothing we can do to be forgiven because apart from God, we're dead. Dead people can't work, let alone do good works. But there's a problem because God's holiness and God's perfection would be compromised if he let unforgiven sinners into his presence. But there's a proper response to the good news. It's to repent and believe. Where did Paul and the other New Testament authors get this message? Well, straight from Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus calls out, Repent and believe the good news. This is straight out of Jesus' mouth. This is how we respond to the good news. Repent and believe. Believing and repenting. You must believe that the gospel is true. But there's more to saving belief than just a intellectual knowledge of it. We must know information, God, people, Christ, yes. But saving belief is not mere mental assent. It's believing and living in the knowledge of that good news. It's trusting Christ alone for salvation, which includes repentance. Repentance is a turning away from trusting in the world for your salvation. It's a turning away from trusting in the world for your security, your significance, and your eternal state. Repentance is a turning away and turning to Christ, turning away from the world to Christ, recognizing your sin, and asking for forgiveness. God, people, Christ, response. That's the gospel. There are many ways we could share, but at the very heart of the gospel is that God is holy, people have sinned, Jesus has come to save us, and we must turn to him By believing and by repenting. That's the first point. That's the first question. We all need to be on the same page. Often we might think the gospel is this, or we think the gospel is that, or we think the gospel is love, and we can't explain it, and we don't understand it. So we have to start here. I hope that's helpful. What is the gospel? Well, moving down to the second question, number two. What does the gospel announce to those who are not Christians? What does the gospel announce to those who are not Christians? Again, verses 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So three things or sub points to this question if you're taking notes or just to track with me here three subpoints first salvation is available to everyone who believes it's available to all it's available to all. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for all. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. The scope of salvation, friends, is universal. It includes everyone. The Greek refers to the Gentile. So Paul is saying the gospel knows no bounds. It knows no limits. Now what Paul means by saying to the Jew first is probably referring to Israel having a special place in God's promises. Jesus is a Jew. Uh, Paul's normal practice was to preach first in the synagogues. And later in Romans, in just the next couple chapters, Paul's going to tell us that the Jews had an advantage, that being a Jew was advantageous because they were entrusted with the very law and word of God. But this distinction here means for us today that no one is outside the realm of salvation to the Jew and to the Greek. So if you're here today, friend, you can be saved. If you're here today and you're not yet a believer in Christ, you can be saved no matter your background, no matter if this is your first time in a church gathering or you've been attending for years, no matter where you're from or what you've done, But here's the important thing. You must respond to the gospel as an individual. You must respond. That was the fourth point just a minute ago. And you must respond as an individual. You have to believe. That's the second thing we see here. Each person must embrace Christ by believing. These verses show that salvation is not automatically conferred to anyone. No one is born a Christian. We heard an announcement about a conference Josh shared it in the very beginning during our announcement time. We had a slide going uh, through as well for a conference that our, our partner church ECCD, formerly UCCD across town is holding in November and the title of the very conference is called No one is born a Christian. No one is born a Christian. Salvation is only for those who have individually placed their faith in Christ. It comes to everyone or to each one in verse 16 who believes. Salvation can't be earned. It doesn't come to certain tribes or so-called Christian parents. You can't earn it by church attendance or by being raised by Christian parents. So let me just, let me just stop and let me talk to the kids, the tweens, and the teens for just a moment. Redeemer Kids, you've been studying the Gospel Project for some time. Redeemer Tweens, on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you have been studying the New City Catechism, where you, you answer questions about the Gospel, questions about the Christian faith. Redeemer Youth, you've been going through Christianity Explained. Next Friday is your sixth and final week. Some of you have been reading the book, Am I Really a Christian?, Some of you have read it previously, some are reading it now. That conference is coming up, no one is born a Christian. I'm preaching through the book to the Romans, which is perhaps the greatest uh, summary of the gospel ever written down. Friends, this is no accident that the gospel is everywhere you turn here at Redeemer Church. And I'm praying that through these various means, that God would draw you, if you don't yet follow Christ, that God would draw you to him. Even today. Even today. Here's what I want to say to everyone. You must answer the question, am I really a Christian? To not answer is actually to answer it. There's nothing in between. Either you believe Christ for salvation or you don't. There's no third option. There's no third way. There's no middle ground. There's no third choice. There's also no specific age for salvation. Let me just say that again. I want you to hear that, kids and tweens. There's no specific age for salvation. So I call you kids and I call you tweens and I call you teens to embrace Jesus, to believe unto him for salvation. You can do it from your seat. You can do it from your seat right now today because it's not something you have to go do. It's a belief in your heart. It's a heart change. This connects with my third sub-point here. Number three, the gospel changes lives. The good news of Jesus changes lives. Remember, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. A rescue from sin and death, but there's also a future hope that's wrapped up in this salvation. It's a present reality. We are saved now, but we are being saved because on the final day we will be taken up and we will see our Savior face to face. A present reality with a future hope. Well friends, the gospel is our bank vault here at Redeemer. We share it and we watch God do the work and through it he changes lives. It's incredible. It's why we're careful. Now listen to this. It's why we're careful never to coerce anyone into believing. We don't have fancy ways of leading people to faith. We're not salespeople. In fact, some of my worst sermons have saved lives because it's not about my power. It's about God's power. I remember December 24th, 2012, our Christmas Eve service, two friends, Martin and Maria, at that point never met them. It was their very first time coming to a Christian gathering of any kind. Two of our members invited Martin and Maria to come and to celebrate Christmas and to hear the message of Christmas. But there was a problem during my sermon that day. I didn't have a podium like this. I held uh, a little book and I had my my pages and my notes in that book. But for those of you who know I have a, a nerve disorder, you'll understand what I mean is when I was flipping through the pages and holding that book during the sermon, my arms locked up, my elbows locked up, and I went through excruciating pain. I barely went through and finished the sermon, hardly knowing what I was saying. This is Christmas Eve. I know we have many visitors. I know we have many who don't yet know Christ. And here I am, barely making it through. I left that sermon so discouraged, realizing how bad of a job I felt like I had done in terms of preaching the message. But it was during that very sermon that Martin and Maria felt a joy like they never felt before and they couldn't get jesus out of their minds and over the next four months those same members that had invited them to come study the bible with martin and maria when it came to the month of april martin and maria came up to those friends and said that we had done it and they said what have you done they said we have repented and we have believed in jesus for salvation later we baptized these two friends From a neighboring uh, closed country. We baptized them. They became members. And now they're serving in ministry in another country. Oh, Friends, the gospel has power. The gospel has power. If you're not yet a Christian, we're always going to talk about this message. And we're going to ask you to respond by believing, by having faith, by trusting in God for salvation. Those three words are essentially the same thing. Believing. Faith and trust. Becoming a Christian means having faith, means trusting in God for salvation, and trusting in the Christian God alone for salvation. Now at times I've been asked why we don't do altar calls at Redeemer Church. Well my answer is always, well no, we we do an altar call every single week at Redeemer. We share the gospel, and we invite people Men, women, teenagers, children, we invite anyone there who doesn't yet know Christ to repent and to believe. It's, it's a spiritual altar call. However, I know what they mean. And what they're talking about and what they're describing is a practice that they've either seen in a church or have experienced in a church previously. It's, it's where the, the, the preacher will share this good news of the gospel and will call anyone who, has, uh, anyone who wants to accept Christ, anyone who wants to believe into Christ, to come and walk forward, to walk the aisle, to, to walk to, to the altar up front. That's called an altar Call, Well, friends, at Redeemer, we intentionally do not do altar calls. We also don't ask people to raise their hand if they would like to accept the faith. And we don't pray what some call the sinner's prayer. Now, that's when a person says they would like to become a Christian. One person prays something, another person repeats it, and at the end, that person is now saved. What we do instead is we pray prayers of thanksgiving for those who are already saved. Now, why don't we do these things? Well, we don't do those things because we think altar calls and sinners' prayers could confuse the gospel. We don't do them because they could confuse Biblical conversion. Now if you came to faith in the process of one of those, that's, that's okay. No need to, to wonder about your faith. No need to be discouraged about your faith. Many have come to faith through those means. But we at Redeemer, we don't practice those activities because we think they can be confusing. They could make it look like the act of walking down an aisle saves you. It could make it look like you praying a special prayer saves you. It could make it look like raising your hand saves you. But friend, you need to know that walking to the front doesn't save you. That going to a private room after the service with the pastors of the church doesn't save you. Signing a document doesn't save you. Praying a certain prayer doesn't save you. Now, I'll always pray with someone who's become a Christian. And we've done this lots even in this last year as we've seen many come to faith. i always pray a prayer of thanksgiving, thanking God for the change in that person's heart. But we want to be careful not confusing conversion and making it a work. See, biblical conversion is a change of heart. That goes from death to life. It's a heart that believes in God. And that's why I say, that's why we say that you can become a Christian right now in your seat. It's because it's a heart change. It's not an action. We're saved by grace alone. Faith and belief is heart change. So if someone says they believe the gospel and they've repented of their sins, they're saved. Let me just say that again. If someone's repented of their sin, if someone has believed unto Christ for salvation, they are a follower of Christ. There's not a second and a third and a fourth step you must take. There are no conditions. This gospel is offered freely. Then eventually there's baptism, and baptism is very important. I'm excited that we're going to celebrate baptisms in about three weeks. Now, baptism, that's the place where we come forward and publicly confess our faith. Baptism is the Bible's version of walking down the aisle. Baptism is letting everyone know that you're identifying with Christ as a Christian. Baptism is the grand announcement. It's the grand announcement that you believe that you are identifying with Christ in baptism and you are are identifying as a Christian publicly. It's beautiful, and I hope you can come join us. In November. Okay, we've answered the first question. What is the gospel? We've looked at the second question. What does the gospel announce to those who are not Christians? We saw that salvation is available to all. We saw that each person must embrace Christ by believing and that the gospel changes lives. Well, let's look at question number three. What does the gospel demand of those who are Christians? What does the gospel demand of those who are Christians? Again, I'll read again. Just listen to these words, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Three demands, so three more subpoints. Three demands the gospel makes of Christians. First, we need to take opportunities to share the gospel. Christian friend, because the gospel is the power of God, we must take opportunities to share the gospel. Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it one bit. This is a bit of Jewish rhetoric, rhetoric here, a literary device sometimes called litotes. It's where an understatement is couched as a double negative and the effects can be more powerful than just stating it positively. It makes a stronger point than a positive affirmation. Paul is saying, Romans, I'm extraordinarily proud of the gospel. I love the gospel. The gospel is my life. The gospel is my everything. Now, in the ancient near east, people may have felt lots of shame. At this gospel message. Their savior dying. The apparent weakness of God. Religious leaders were mocking followers of Jesus. They were mocking the freeness of salvation. Instead choosing to follow 600 or so Levitical laws. Which of course they failed at. Well what was and is the good news really is revolutionary. Revolutionary. It's revolutionary. Why? It's it's because we can never be good enough. Friends, it's because we can never be good enough to save ourselves. The freeness of salvation insulted people back then, and it insults people today. We naturally, we want to work for it. Works are probably the biggest stumbling block to believing in the gospel. The gospel insulted the religious elite of Christ's day Because all could be saved, the rich and the poor, the religious leaders and the commoner. The gospel is insulting because it tells us that we were so bad, that we were so evil, so wicked, so sinful that Jesus had to die for us, that God had to come to us. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed by that message. It's the only message that leads to salvation. And I'm going to share it no matter what. It is the power of God. Oh, church, we must take opportunities to share the gospel. Being saved by Christ demands that we share the good news with others. I mean, what if you had a deadly disease? You went to the doctor's office. And the doctor told you that you were fine because he or she didn't want to offend you or hurt your feelings. Is that love? Now, of course not. It's a form of hatred. How can we hold on to the cure to the greatest disease in the world? If we had the cure for cancer, we would share it. And this is more than that. This is a heart disease, and it's more than a physical heart disease. It is a spiritual heart disease, the problem of sin. It's the disease of sin which resides in our hearts. It's what will separate us from God for eternity if we don't believe in Jesus for our salvation. The gospel is the grand cure for our sin. One of my favorite stories in the history of Redeemer Church uh, is a story of boldness involving Pastor Alvin Lutonawa, former elder at Redeemer Church, now the senior pastor at Crossroads Church of Dubai. I love Pastor Alvin. I love his boldness. Several years ago, when we were meeting as a church in Dira, there was a building across the street that was on fire, broad daylight, in the middle of the afternoon, I'm coming on the metro to come home to Dira, and I see on the right side this this really wide building just ablaze, the whole thing being burnt down. I come home, and then Gloria and I talk. The next day, Gloria goes and brings dozens of donuts to what turns out to be a, a couple hundred Filipinos who have lost their accommodations. Standing outside, many of them weeping, many of them losing their documents, losing cash, losing personal items with no, no hope at the moment. Homeless, just waiting for accommodation. Well, Gloria came home, asked what we could do. I called Pastor Alvin for help, and almost before I could get off the phone, Pastor Alvin was already driving to that building. And he asked the Filipino consulate how we as a church could help this situation. Now, at that time, we had a, a church van, and Alvin uh, was able to take four trips with a dozen people each to a new accommodation across town. And I love Alvin's boldness. and He saw his fellow Filipinos weeping at their loss and not knowing what was going to be next for them. And Alvin said this in, in Tagalog. He said, friends, I know you've just faced a big fire I know your life is torn apart and you faced a big fire, but if you don't believe in Jesus as your Savior, there's a bigger fire yet to come. That's what he actually said. That's a bold message, isn't it? That's what he said to these tearful individuals in this van. But do you know what? Out of those four van loads, Pastor Alvin started a Bible study with three of those groups. And our church was able to, to help and care for them. We bought them mattresses and food and, and cookers. But more than that, Pastor Alvin taught them the word. And we saw life come. Pastor Alvin was unashamed of the gospel. And God used his evangelism to change lives and to eventually start Crossroads Church of Dubai. Pastor Alvin wasn't ashamed because the gospel is not a power. The gospel is not a power, but it is the Power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Oh, Christian friend, as you sit here on this Sunday morning, who in your life needs to hear this message? Student, teenagers, tweens, even our children, newer believers, Six-year-olds and 66-year-olds. Who in your life needs to hear the gospel message? Is there someone you've been avoiding? A conversation you've postponed? Someone you're afraid to speak this truth to? Redeemer Church, let's take opportunities to share The gospel. A second thing we see here under what does the gospel demand of those who are Christians. Number two, remember the gospel has power. I've said it many times this morning, but we need to remember the gospel has power. Don't forget this. Power is the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamite. Maybe you worry uh, about how you're going to sound if you share the faith. Maybe you worry you don't have all the answers. Maybe you worry that you can't answer all theological questions. But the reality is, if you're a Christian, if you've believed in the message of the gospel, if you're a Christian, you have the gospel. We all are armed with that same power. And unlike dynamite, which explodes and tears things down, the gospel is powerful and builds things up. It's the power that saves. Now, this is encouraging because it's not our message. We didn't make it up, and we don't have to make it any better. The gospel already has power. All we're called to do is to take that powerful message that God has given to us and hand it off to someone else. It's like a relay race. Just imagine a 4 by 100 relay race around the track where run, one runner grabs the baton and hands it off to another runner. In a sense, this is what we do. Of course, we we still have the gospel within us, but we grab the baton, we have the truth of the gospel, and we we pass it off. We share it with others. We, We tell others the good news of the gospel. Friends, being a Christian demands that we share this And we can be confident as we share it because it is not our message. It's not man's message. It is God's message, and it is the power of God. And so we share that message, we give it to another, and we leave the results to God. You never know how God might use you or when he might use you. Consider the the story of Luke Short. You've probably never heard of this man. He came to Christ. At the ripe old age of 103, it's never too late, he was sitting under a tree and he remembered a sermon by the great Puritan John Flavel. There under the tree he reflected on the truths of the gospel and he asked God to forgive him of his sins. He repented and he believed in Christ to save him. Listen to this description that's written on his tombstone. Here lies a babe in grace, aged three years, who died according to nature, aged 106. But here's what's incredible. It's a great story already, but here's what's incredible. The sermon, short, remembered, was preached by Flavel 85 years earlier. Nearly a century between sermon and conversion, between sowing and reaping. Flavel's sermon bore fruit long after he had passed away. Well, Scholar Leon Morris writes, When the gospel is shared, it's not merely words uttered, but the power of God is at work. Redeemer Church, don't disregard what looks like a day of small things. You never know how God is using you today and how he will use you into the future. Christian, remember the gospel has power and hand it off to others. Well, finally, a third answer to what the gospel demands of Christians. Number three, Christian, continue to live by faith. Continue to live by faith. Verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Righteousness is the Greek word dikaiosune. Righteousness. This verse explains why the gospel has power back in verse 16. For, or you could say because, the gospel has power for, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Tom Schreiner suggests that what Paul is saying is that this is God's righteousness both as an attribute of God and a gift of God. God is righteous, meaning he always exists in line with his perfect character. And his righteousness is on display as he saves us. The gospel that Jesus saves sinners reveals the righteousness of God. That he is righteous. And that phrase, from faith, for faith, means that God's righteousness comes by faith alone. Now there are many interpretations of exactly what that phrase means. The wording sounds a little bit odd to us, but it seems that Paul is simply making the point that it's faith through and through. Or as some translations and commentators say, it's faith from the first to the last. An idiom of emphasis, meaning salvation only comes by faith. But then as Christians, we continue to live in faith. It's not as if you believe, you have faith, you're saved, and then that's it. No, we continue living by faith. Look at the end of verse 17. The righteous shall live by faith. This was the very verse that saved Martin Luther, searching for God, feeling condemned by God. Luther read those words while preparing for a lecture, and he realized that the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus to all who believe. And Luther was saved. Well, those words are from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, which Dr. TJ read for us earlier in the service. People have always been saved by faith. It's not a New Testament message. People were saved by faith in the one true God in the Old Testament, and people are saved by faith in the one true God in the New Testament. Even there in Habakkuk, you were saved by faith. Faith. There in Habakkuk 2, to give you the context, the believers, they were waiting for a time when God's promises would be fulfilled. Fulfillment seemed slow. Those there in Israel, they were being bombarded by enemies. Israel was facing a great catastrophe. The people of God were, were being invaded by enemies. And for a time, the pagans were, were triumphing. They were, they were winning. The, the people of God were, were suffering. They were being judged. And Habakkuk was a bit confused. He knew God's promises, but what he was seeing with his very eyes was something different. But friends, if you know the story of Habakkuk, a time would come there and later that a rescuer would come. That God will keep his promises. There were two possible responses then and now. Some can reject God and try on their own to be saved. Or, by contrast, you can follow the words of Habakkuk chapter 2. Verse 4, that the righteous shall live by faith. Oh, church, we come to Christ by faith, but we also live day by day by the same faith. How's your faith today? Christian, how's your faith this week? Is it strong? Are Are you struggling? Are you feeling like Habakkuk and... Israel felt, many years ago, maybe confused even, wondering what is God doing in my life? You're facing depression, loneliness, lost, struggle with finances or visa or school. You're exhausted. You're lonely. Whatever it is for you. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. God holds your life. God holds the whole world in His hands. In our most challenging times, God is there. He is with you. Oh, friend, by faith, press on for another day. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank You for these glorious verses. Oh, Father, would many be saved in our midst, even today, even already during the sermon or right now or as we sing. Lord, would you save souls? And would we as Redeemer Church, would we live by faith, not by sight? Father, would we trust you with every part of our lives? We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.